You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. I was glad to uh, go on to Facebook this morning and to uh, see that Jimmy and Nelma Green are going to church this morning. And uh, we, we bless God for that. They're going to be at uh, First Cathedral Church where Anna was laid to rest, or where was, was the funeral take, took place uh, almost two years ago. And so this morning, many of us are thinking of them. This is the day, two years ago, when the Newtown Massacre took place. And um, it was uh, uh, a horrible day. And I've uh, been re- rethinking it uh, in, tr- in my mind, how many stories are heard uh, about that day. The, the phone calls that people got and, the, and the, the waiting in the firehouse and so on. And so this morning I'd like to begin with uh, just a time in prayer for, for them. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm full of praise this morning, really. I, I'm so thankful to God that uh, uh, Nelba posted on her Facebook that uh, that was their plan. They're, they're going to go and, and they're actually sharing in the church service. So, and uh, those of you that have walked closely uh, with them, you know that's a, a big step to uh, go to church on this day uh, and to be able to come out and share. So, so would you join me? Let's pray for this family. <clears throat> Father, our God, we, uh, we thank you for your incredible grace, your healing love, your power made perfect in weakness. And Father, we, we come and we offer you this sacrifice of praise this morning for <coughs> this family, Lord, for, for wrapping them up in your love and so many others as well, Lord, in this, in this area of, of Connecticut and uh, just showing them your grace these last two years, Lord, as you continue to heal their broken spirit and their uh, memories. And we praise you, Lord, that, that uh, you continue to uh, lead them, shepherd them out of the darkness into the light. And uh, we thank you that the last word belongs to you, O Jesus. You are the victor and that there is no God like you and that many will see and fear and put their trust in you because you are worthy of praise and... Um, you are doing good things through all the brokenness and through all the bleeding and hurt of life. Oh God, you're doing good things. You are a God who, who raises us out of the ash heap and sets our feet on a rock and gives us a firm place to stand. So Lord, we give you praise this morning. We thank you for Jimmy and Nelm and Isaiah and we pray that as they this morning are off to the service to share We pray that not only will they be well received there, but that they would sense in their own spirit uh, the power of your grace to make them stand and to to open their mouths to speak a word of testimony that will give you the glory. And we thank you for that, Lord. It's a a big milestone. We pray also that you'd continue to uh, meet with them as they continue on. Show them, Lord, what life looks like and, and what you're calling them to. So we lift them up to you, and we pray all also for anyone that is uh, hurting. Lord, this season of year, when 
So many are gathered and families are meeting and uh, I've talked to, to several and even in the last week or two that uh, choose not to celebrate Christmas, choose not to <clears throat> do it the way they used to do it. It's not the same anymore. We pray, oh God, that you'd give us eyes to see those people and the ears to hear their, their hearts and hands to reach out and just show them some kind of love this Christmas, Father. So, Father, we praise you for your grace, and we pray that we would be an extension of that grace as we, as we uh, think of those around us. Thank you, Lord, that in the same moment we can rejoice with those who rejoice, and we can weep with those who weep. And so, Lord, make us that kind of people. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, believe it or not, I, I, um, I thought about... Uh, the story of the Titanic this past week, and I woke up this morning with it on my mind. And uh, the reason I had thought of it was because I, I, I've often thought about, having, having read about it and seen the movie, I guess, I've often thought about how much of a terror that evening would have been back in April 14th in 1912. And uh, there they were on this maiden voyage crossing the Atlantic, on the newest technology afloat, and uh, 2,208 people. And uh, at 11.40 p.m., they struck an iceberg. They had been warned six times that evening that there were icebergs in the area. And the telegraph operator was busy sending uh, greetings to people over in North America from those that were coming from Europe and so on. And uh, he didn't heed the warnings that were being given and so you can imagine that at 11.40 in the evening that, that some were already asleep and uh, they received this rude wake-up call. And, and wake-up calls come in all kinds of fashions. Uh, it made me think about the, the wake-up call that Jimmy and Nelba received two years ago, the call on the cell phone that, that alerted some people. And so in the Old Testament, the Word of God teaches us that those that were commissioned with the wake-up call were called prophets or watchmen. And we've been reading in this Advent season about the various prophecies in Scripture. And though we look at them as messianic fulfillment and we see Jesus Christ, because we have the vantage point of looking back now across history and we see the, the, the first coming of Jesus Christ, and we look back and we see the orig, origin of that prophecy that is fulfilled in the first coming of Christ and is waiting to fu- be fulfilled even further, some of them, into the second coming of Christ. But as we look back, we see that or, originally the, the prophecies that we read about in the Old Testament had an, had an imminent wake-up call, had an imminent meaning in the moment and in the time of the 8th century before Christ when Isaiah lived and ministered the last half of the 8th century B.C. And so as we, as we look at some of these prophecies and we see them as, as very much talking about Christmas or Easter and the events in, the, in that time 2,000 years ago, we, we recognize that really, going back even further, they had a reason to be spoken in that time to Israel. And they were wake-up calls. Because people in the 8th century B.C., in Isaiah's time, Israel had slipped into a slumbering stupor. And even their prophets 
and even their priests and watchmen, the ones that were commissioned with religious leadership in the nation of Israel, had, had fallen away. The Word of God speaks in Isaiah 28 in different passages about how they were given to strong drink more than they were given to strong conviction. And so here is Isaiah, God raising him up, and he's having this incredible life of ministry to live before him. And in Isaiah chapter 51, there's uh, various passages in chapters 51 and 2 that talk about this word, awake, awake. In chapter 51 and uh, verse 1, or 52 verse 1, awake, awake, O Zion, clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they sing for joy. But uh, here are watchmen that are being uh, not heeded. They're not listened to. And uh, today as well we can think about the fact that as as a church we need to raise a voice whether being listened to or not. Isaiah ministered in a time uh, when there was lethargy spiritually. He ministered through various kings of Judah in their time. He lived most of his life in Jerusalem. And during his time on earth, he had so many prophecies. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem over 100 years before it occurred. He talked about the captivity to Babylon and even the return from captivity. He even prophesied the coming of Jesus the Messiah 700 years before the birth of Christ. And Jewish tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two uh, during the reign of the evil king Manasseh. And in fact, some people believe that when we read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, it talks about those where some were sawn in two, that they believe that it's a reference to Isaiah's death. But I think that the reason that God used Isaiah so, so effectively to be a man that, that was like a watchman, that heralded the call, that called Israel to awaken, was because he himself had received such a call to awaken. And you know the passage I'm referring to in Isaiah chapter 6, when he had this experience with God, a wake-up call, as you would say, in the, in the temple in the year that King Uzziah died. And he had this experience of the holiness of God when he was in the temple of God. And there in that place, he he realized that not only was God touching him with the cleansing power of God, but also he was commissioning him to go and to to preach and to awaken others to to the Lord God. And, uh, you know, there's nothing that can do that like a personal encounter with God. Our own personal experience with God is absolutely essential if we're going to live a life on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. We can attend church services. We can hear testimonies. We can read good biographies. We can fellowship and hang out with other Christian people. And we can do many other good things, but nothing is going to substitute. Nothing is going to replace my personal relationship with the Lord God. The fact that I have a connection with the living God, the only true and living God. We cannot substitute that. And in order for us to understand a little bit more of some of the scripture we're going to look at this morning, we need to understand that in the Old Testament times and up until the time of Christ, 
that meant having a relationship with the temple. Okay, that meant having a relationship with the temple because that's where the, the living God lived and dwelt. And um, we cannot associate it the same as us go, coming to this building. If, if that's what you're thinking, then you need to put that out of your mind. It, going to church for us is not what it was like for an Old Testament believer to go to Jerusalem and go to the temple. For a Jewish man or woman in the time of Jesus, faith centered on the city of Jerusalem and faith centered on being in the temple, at least visiting the temple in your time in your life, if, if possible, annually. The most important time of the year, of course, was Passover. But there were three festivals during the year when every male Jew was, was earnestly wanting to go up to Jerusalem. I just went to the movie uh, with Barry uh, to the movie Exodus, and we saw uh, a great movie, by the way, I, I would commend it. I'm not suggesting you get your theology from it. Uh, Hollywood doesn't do good at that, but it is definitely a great reminder of, of the story and good for you to think about what's true and biblical and what's not in that movie. But perhaps one of the most interesting um, last words of, of Jewish wor- worshipers when they recite the words at the end of the Passover Seder meal is the words, next year in Jerusalem. Have you heard that before? Next year in Jerusalem. That's what they say at the end of every Seder meal. They say next year in Jerusalem. And I've read various interpretations of what that means for a Jewish believer. Next year in Jerusalem. For some, it's spiritualism. It's kind of a, uh, interpreted spiritually. Just sort of like this idea that uh, in, in a spiritual Jerusalem... Some are interpreting it very literally that they're believing that ultimately and ideally and hopefully their Messiah is going to return and they're going to see the the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem and his followers will gather there. Maybe next year in Jerusalem they, they, they pray. And even today the geographical location of Jerusalem is not minimized at all. We understand the conflict there. We understand why it exists. Well, in the time of Isaiah and in the time of Jesus, there was a temple in Jerusalem. And it was the center of religious and spiritual life for the Jew. Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11? In Mark chapter 11, I'd like to read Mark's version of the prophecy from Isaiah that we're going to be looking at this morning. <coughs> and it's found in Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 11. <clears throat> this passage is, is, is uh, the time of Palm Sunday, Jesus entering Jerusalem, and then the very first couple days, what, what events take place. So would you stand with me and let's listen to God's word. Mark chapter 11, and I'd like to begin with verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late... He went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves 
and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise throughout the temple area. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. May God bless his word. You may be seated. You might remember a couple of years ago when we went through the Gospel of Mark, we talked about a feature that Mark likes to write in his Gospel. It's called a Markan sandwich. And here's an example of a sandwich in the sense that he refers to a story within a story. And in this situation, it's an actual story about the the temple, but it's sandwiched with the story of the fig tree being cursed. And uh, we look at this scripture and we wonder why it is that Jesus cursed the fig tree. But really, what Mark is trying to convey and what Jesus was trying to convey through symbol was that, that it was the temple and its leadership that was being cursed, not the fig tree. The fig tree was simply an illustration that that uh, Jesus wanted to convey. And so the next morning, Jesus is on his way back to the temple. He sees a fig tree and is hungry, but he only finds leaves on it, and so he curses it. And it doesn't matter to us, really, it doesn't matter to Mark that it's not the season for figs. It doesn't matter. The point is that, that a tree that is bearing leaves and no figs is, is of no value. And a, and a temple that is present and, off and functional and, and welcoming of all kinds of people that got their money and their sacrifices, but is not truly a house of prayer for all nations and a, a worshiping center for all peoples, is have no value to God, the Lord God. And so Jesus, in this denunciation, was announcing his judgment upon the temple. And Jesus was saying that leaves without fruit is false advertising, God has no use for a tree that has leaves but no fruit, and he has no use for a house called by his name that is not a place of prayer for all nations. If you uh, look at Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3, one of the things that Isaiah's prophecy was clear about, it says that yet let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. He's saying, let no one that's not an Israelite, that's you and I, that's me anyway, let no one who is not Jewish ever say, let no one who's not Jewish who has bound himself to the Lord, the living God, let them never say that they're going to be excluded because I'm a God of all nations, all ethnos. And then later on it says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Let them find joy on my holy hill. Isaiah says in chapter 56. Now it's easy to overinterpret this passage of the cleansing of the temple. Uh, We can be sure that what Jesus did on that day was more of a symbolic gesture, really. (coughs) Excuse me. It was a symbolic gesture. He probably walked into the temple area where the money changers were, where where the, uh, the doves and the lambs were being sold. He probably turned over a couple of benches, caused a little ruckus in some corner, and then carried on his way as he, as he preached. You can be sure that the temple police would never 
have allowed a huge interruption in the merchandise and in the sales of that day around Passover when Caiaphas was in charge, the high priest. For this was one of the, the, the money-making times of the year. be kind of like going into one of the main department stores today and just shutting it down. No, they're not going to let that happen. they got sales going on. They want to make their money now because January is slim pickings. And similarly, in this time, likely what Jesus was doing was a symbolic gesture of turning over some tables and, and, and announcing His judgment and then moving on. Just enough of a commotion, but not so much as to become arrested or to, to make a, uh, a, a problem. And um, the words that He speaks from both Isaiah and Jeremiah, God shows uh, fulfillment in this act. That, that the temple was never meant to be uh, a national shrine for Israel. The temple was never meant to be a place of making money and lucrative business. The temple was never meant to be a segregating place between Gentile and Jew, or even male and female. This temple was not meant to be a place like this. The temple was meant to be a house of prayer. A place where someone could come and they could find the true and living God with his arms wide open for anyone who wanted to come and worship. And so Jesus was announcing God's judgment. The comment from Jeremiah chapter 7 also has to do with it's not a place, a a den of robbers. And it, it pictures this band of thieves. They're hiding out in a in a cave after having done a job. That's the way that Jesus uh, fulfills Jeremiah chapter 7. Jesus is saying, you think that you can live ungodly lives as religious leaders. You think that you can treat people unjustly, charging exorbitant taxes to the foreigners, making them change their money before they can actually buy the sacrifice, not accepting the lambs that they've brought from their hometowns, but having to buy a temple-certified lamb and such like. You think you can do all of this injustice, show no mercy to the people that I've called to my holy hill to worship me. You think you can do this and then hide out in my temple and think that I am going to protect you. You're wrong. I have not designed this place to be a den of thieves. You will not find refuge in my house, God says to the religious leaders. Barren religion has no place in God's kingdom. And so Jesus is announcing the temple days, they're coming to an end. Just like this fig tree came to an end. He's cursing it. And the prophecy that Jesus gives on the day that he cleanses the temple came to fulfillment likely by the time that Mark is writing his gospel. It had already come to fulfillment in the destruction of the temple. The next morning as Jesus and his disciples walk back, they come across this fig tree, as I said, cursed, withered from the root. And the words of Jesus fulfilled. Jesus makes it clear he'd not come to reform the temple, to reform its worship, but rather to abolish it, to bring an end to it. He would become the great high priest. He would take over where Caiaphas left off. He would become the sacrifice that is offered. He would be the priest. And he would offer himself for every sinner 
regardless of where they've come from. Time has run out for fruitless fig trees and prayerless temples. And so the focus was shifting to a new order. <laughs> That's the message of this scripture. Now, if we, if we step back from Isaiah's time, and if we step back from Mark's time, when the time of Jesus and so on, and we move ahead now to our time, this is where I think the scripture's got to be applied. So I don't want you to get lost in Isaiah. I want you to understand Isaiah. I want you to understand what Isaiah was saying to Israel in his day. I want you to understand why that spiritual lethargy is a message we need to hear for our day. I want you to understand what Jesus was doing in the temple that day when he went in and turned over the tables and preached the word of prophecy found in Isaiah and Jeremiah. You need to understand, you need to hear. There was incredible, significant, historical uh, significance to to that, that moment in time. But if you don't go ahead to the church age now that is, that is interpreted by the apostles in their teaching in the New Testament, you're going to miss a major part of, I believe, what the whole teaching is meant to be about. And that is that, that we are ourselves are temples of the Holy Spirit. And in Paul's letters especially, Paul unpacks the theology of temple worship. And he takes it out of the the cobwebs of Old Testament history, and he even takes it out of the recent history in his day of Jesus' life and the, and the temple, and he takes it, fast-forwards it to, to the church age, and he says that the temple is no more, but you, church, are the temple of God. He speaks of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He speaks again of it in chapter 6. He goes into his second letter once more in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He, he does it again. And in, other, and in other passages, like in Ephesians, Paul is again un, unpacking this idea that the church is the temple of the living God. And he even uses the language of a house of prayer. And so if we were to really want to apply this scripture to ourselves... If we want to understand the message that the Holy Spirit wants to convey to us, I think we need to stop for a moment and land on that and think about that. Not only collectively, Paul says at one point in chapter 3 of Corinthians, are we the church and the, the temple of the living God, but even individually and even down to not just your life, but your very body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? And even the word that's used for temple in that context, Paul is talking about not the temple grounds generally, and not even the court of, of the, the holy place, but rather the holy of holies is the word used. Your, your body is the holy of holies. Your body is the place where the, 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 the very center of it all, the, the place where God, the living one, Jesus Christ himself dwells. What does that mean, really? I, I, I sat this morning just with that on my mind after having looked at my, my message notes. And I, I thought again, I am a house of prayer. Like, and, I, and I'm sitting in my house and I'm thinking about the analogy of house. And I'm thinking, so, so I live in this house on Quincy Bay, 
And, and it's, a, it's a people, there's living beings in this house, and that's what makes it a home. And not just a building. And if we ever call 201 Skirfield a house of God, it's got to be only when and during which the people of God are here, right? Because it's just a building, right? And so if we say that our bodies now are temples of the living God, if, if our bodies, physically, our bodies are houses of prayer, I just think about that and I think, man, I am falling far short of my calling. That's what I think. That's what I thought of this morning. I was thinking, God, how, how little I am a house of prayer. How little I am consciously in communion with you. How little do I use this body and this mind and this heart and my will and my voice and everything about me to be a place of intercession, to be a place where you are worshipped and where you are sought and where others are interceded for. I'm not trying to beat you up this morning, folks. I'm, I'm just saying this is our calling this is fundamental to being Christian. It's, it's who we are. It's not what we are called to do. It's who we are. We are temples. God lives in us. And we worship Him intimately because of that, of that proximity. So that's the first half of the, of the application, I think. And that is simply, what does this say about my prayer life? That my body is a house of prayer. And so I can be driving down the road, I can be walking, I can be in the shower, I can be playing hockey, I can be doing whatever I'm doing, and I, in that moment, can be still a house of prayer. That's what I am. That's what you are as a, as a child of God. But the second part of it is that I'm meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, and so the question that I ask myself on that front is, what does this passage then and its application say about my relationship with those who are from other cultures, from other ethnic groups? What does it say about us together as we receive immigrants and refugees, as we think about neighbors that are from other ethnic groups? groups or, or language groups? And what does it say about us as individuals in terms of our attitudes toward other ethnic groups? And how do we receive them? And I know we get intimidated. We, we don't want to cross the street because that, that person speaks a different language and they're from a different culture and they, they don't celebrate the same festivals and times of the year that we do and so on. And we feel awkward and so we just kind of stay with our own. We live in the bubbles in Canada in, in our ethnic, you know, our ethnic silos. But I think God's saying something in this. I think God's saying that we're meant to be houses of prayer for all nations. And that somehow other people and other people groups are meant to really find a refuge with us, find a, a listening ear in us, find a place to connect with God through us. You know, we saw it in India when we were there just a month ago, those, the team that went. I, I, maybe five or six times, I, can't, I didn't count them, but I heard about how either Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim 
people would come and ask Christian people to pray to their God because mama wasn't getting healed or, or baby wasn't getting better. And they seriously went to Christians and said, if you call out to your God, maybe something will happen. And we heard a couple of testimonies of someone getting healed because the Christian church was fasting and praying and people turned to Jesus Christ because your God answered prayer. That's not an isolated story in many parts of the world today. And the conviction I had when I, when I would hear those stories was, do I take prayer seriously enough? I mean, do we ever put God on the spot in that way? Do we ever receive a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, and, and, and offer to pray? We say, you know, I'm going to pray for you. What's your, what's your sister's name? I'm going to pray daily for your sister. And then follow up and ask, how's it going? And just say, God, please show up for your own glory and for their good, for their salvation. Lord, show up. Show that you're the living God. Make me a house of prayer for all nations. I believe that's what God's call upon our lives is meant to look like. Do I welcome them into this house of prayer? So I'm, I'm going to encourage you this week. I'm going to encourage you to, to think about your life as a house of prayer. And I'm going to encourage you to take the next step as well, to, to think about someone in your life that's from another ethnic group and, and maybe, maybe an unsaved person that God has put in your life that has something going on and it's bigger than they can manage. It's often when God shows up in people's lives. And just say to them, how, how can I pray for you? You know, that simple question has opened an incredible door for me in so many relationships. I just say, how can I pray for you? And if, you're, if, you, if, you, if they can see that you take it seriously, usually there's a real serious response. There's something. And even some that don't believe in prayer will say, well, if it's any good, this, this is what I need. This is, this is the thing that makes me cry at night. <laughs> Would you do that? How can I pray for you? It's a simple thing. And then go to God faithfully. Just go to God and say, God, I, you're not, I'm not your God. You're my God. I'm not trying to bend your will. I'm just asking, Lord, would you show up? Would you do something here to magnify your name, to bring, to bring people to Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's what my prayer is this, this morning. We have a plaque at our front door. It's actually behind our door if you open it, but um, it says this. It says, share faith, offer prayer, gather hope. And I think those really go hand in hand, that, that there's an incredible lack of faith in Canada among many people that we relate to. They just do not have faith in anything. It leads to hopelessness. And so if we, if we share faith, it actually can be contagious. People say, well, maybe there is something to this whole thing of God. And then and if we offer prayer, 
I think that's the step I'm talking about this morning, is offering prayer. It's incredible how God shows up. He delights in us exercising faith that is laying it out on the line, that makes us look stupid if God doesn't show up, that makes it look so that, so that we can't answer our own prayers. You see, praying God-sized prayers makes you look stupid if God doesn't show up. But it also requires faith, doesn't it? And then finally, gather hope. I think hope is gathered when we exercise faith and when we offer prayer. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And, and um, as they come, I'm going to invite us to just pray for a moment. Would you stand with us and we're going to be led in a song finally. But before that, I'd like to, I'd like to lead us in prayer. <laughs> Father, our message this morning uh, has been simple. It's, it's a call to prayer. It's a call to be houses of prayer for all nations. And Lord, I, I ask you to continue to write the nations on our hearts here in this church. And in our own lives, Lord... Uh, Wherever you want our lives to intersect with people from other walks of life, other ethnic groups, or, or other different categories, Lord, we, we pray that you would lead us in those paths. And Lord, would you put your Holy Spirit upon us to know which ones we're meant to really talk to and to pray for. And as we step out on a limb and, and as we offer prayer on behalf of others who maybe cannot or do not pray, We ask you, Lord, to show up in your power and show your grace real and your love genuine and your power authentic so that people might know and see that you are the living God and you're known through the Lord Jesus Christ. Be praised through us in this way, we ask, through Jesus Christ. Amen.